Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. As we close out 2018, we continue our look back at the extraordinary year of 1968. This week, part two of our conversation with University of Minnesota Regents Professor Emeritus of History Sarah Evans on some of the events that shaped that tumultuous year. Professor Evans, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. You mentioned, of course, the role of youth in the protests here in the U.S. and across the world in 1968. We heard in that year a lot about a so-called generation gap. There was a yes. term bandied about uh, by younger people, don't trust anyone over 30. Right. That certainly played out domestically when we watched the primaries for the Democratic Party, the presidential primaries, right. and of course culminated at the uh, Democratic National Convention in Chicago. We saw young people really rejecting Hubert Humphrey. He was viewed as the establishment candidate right. and embracing candidates like uh, Robert F. Kennedy and Minnesota's own Eugene McCarthy. Uh, again, was this generation gap truly real, or was there less of an ideological gulf between younger and older people than uh, we might have thought? You know, as always, things are more complicated than they seem on the surface. I think there was a genuine and very deep generation gap, but I also think that that generation within itself was not of a single mind. There were certainly conservative young people. There were young people who supported the war. There were young people who were taking advantage of an expanding economy and looking forward to rising economically. The generation that was making all the news in 1968, the leaders of it deeply disagreed with their elders on many, many levels. But certainly they had a lot of peers who didn't share all of that. And so I suspect that any poll you did would show a gap, but not an absolute gap by any means. Minnesota played a significant role in the presidential primary in 1968. Two state politicians ran for the office, Vice President Hubert Humphrey and Senator Eugene McCarthy. How were these candidates different, and what did they say about the politics in Minnesota at that time? Well, it's interesting because Eugene McCarthy, who was our senator, was one of the key people who ignited a generation that was already engaged in civil rights and anti-war work, but to believe that they could be involved in electoral politics and make a difference. So many thousands of young people rallied to his candidacy as he was running in the primaries, challenging Lyndon Johnson, and then, of course, later Hubert Humphrey. Hubert Humphrey was the vice president, and he had a long history, which is very Minnesota, of lifting up civil rights issues. In 1948, he was quite famous for racial equality and willing to challenge others in his party on that issue. But by 1968, Humphrey had been the vice president under Lyndon Johnson. He had been used in 64 to cover up the testimony of Fannie Lou Hamer at the Democratic Convention about 
the brutal beating she received for daring to want to register to vote in Mississippi. And he was seen as basically having sold his soul. Himself looked to as a great civil rights leader within the party, a mentor to people like Walter Mondale. He was seen by the young people who were active against the Vietnam War as having sold his soul on the issue of the war. We know that he had grave doubts about the war and probably would have done things to wind it down very quickly had he been elected. But his loyalty to Johnson meant that he couldn't articulate that clearly. So what you have are two Minnesota liberals, Eugene McCarthy, who is inspiring young people to challenge the status quo, and Hubert Humphrey, who despite his history of leadership, was seen as the status quo. So that's quite the contrast. The independent candidate George Wallace won five states in the 1968 presidential election. Who was Wallace, and why did he make such a strong showing for a third-party candidate? George Wallace had been the governor of Alabama, and he had been one of the most vocal opponents of civil rights legislation and of integration of schools. He stood in the door of the University of Alabama when black students who had been admitted as students by court order came to matriculate at that university, and he stood at the door and basically said, I bar you from doing this. We don't allow blacks to attend school with whites. He then, of course, had to step aside because there was federal law behind that handful of black students. But he was an icon to those in the South who wanted to defend white superiority, white domination, and a whole legal system of racial segregation and a system that prevented blacks from participating in politics. So he became the voice for the reaction against civil rights legislation. And he drew on the fact that there were racists across the country. Now, he couldn't win in states across the country. He could win in the South, which is evidence both that blacks are being prevented from voting, but also of the deep, deep resistance to racial equality in those southern states. But we know for sure that there were people all over the country who agreed with that agenda. And I think we see today that that agenda is still alive and well. Think about Charlottesville, for example. And we also know that even here in Minnesota, we have our own tainted history of racial segregation, anti-Semitism. You know, it's there. I'm a white Southerner. It's important to own the horrors of racial subordination in that part of our country. It's also important to know that those attitudes are not solely confined to the South. And I think if you looked closely at Wallace's campaign, 
you would see that he could draw crowds in many parts of this country. He couldn't win except in those states. He was voted for by people who wanted to continue a status quo of racial domination by whites. We're talking with Sarah Evans. She's a Regents Professor Emeritus in the History Department at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the legacy of the year 1968. Is it fair to say the Republican Party took a major turn in 1968? We've heard a lot about the Southern strategy. Obviously, Southern Democrats uh, historically had opposed uh, desegregation moves. Uh, one yeah. of the great strengths of Lyndon Johnson and to some extent Hubert Humphrey, uh, as you mentioned before, Johnson knew how to count the votes. He was able to take some of those Southern Democrats, a lot of right. them, and get them on board with his civil rights legislation. Uh, was there a turning point there, where the Southern Democrats uh, suddenly yes. jumped on the civil rights bandwagon and the Republicans perhaps uh, picked up to some extent the torch of some of the segregationists. That is demonstrable. In 1964, the story goes that when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, he looked up and said, there goes the South, or something like that. He knew that Many Southern Democrats would not remain in the Democratic Party once the Democratic Party had become the party of civil rights. And Nixon knew that as well. And one of the things attributed to Nixon is a Southern strategy on the part of Republicans to pick up those conservative, racist, white Democrats in the South and bring them into the Republican Party. I was in high school and college then, but I remember people that I had known were very active Democrats suddenly becoming Republicans and taking all those attitudes with them. And now we have a solid South again. They used to talk about the solid South that only voted Democratic because the Democratic Party was the party of Southern whites. They called themselves the Redeemers in the 1880s and 1890s. Those were the whites who retook control of southern state governments after Reconstruction and did so by suppressing black votes, making it impossible for African Americans to participate in politics and to vote. And so that was the Democratic Party in the South, while in the North it was the party of labor unions and um, had a whole other set of agendas. That party flipped over to make the South solid for Republicans in the late 60s and in the 70s and 80s. Well, how did the Democratic Party regroup after not only the loss in 1968, but the riots at their convention and the very tumultuous and divided primary process? There was a huge amount of rethinking, and the fact is that most Democrats knew the war was not winnable and probably wrong. So that once Humphrey lost, the more progressive wing of the party was in ascendancy. And of course, they initiated a series of reforms at the grassroots to be more inclusive, and they ended up nominating McGovern in 72. Well, he lost big time. But there was a major shift in 
the leadership of the party from the older generation of Cold War liberals to people of a somewhat different stamp. And then you get Jimmy Carter, who is also a former governor, like George Wallace, but he was a governor of Georgia, who tries to find a middle road, one that embraces civil rights, but takes advantage of the fact that the dissolution with the war, complicated further by Watergate, had alienated Americans from the Republican Party. And so they worked their way back, trying to recreate a new coalition, which was the old coalition that Franklin Roosevelt had created between labor and blacks and liberal whites, leaving the solid South to stay white. In the 70s, I think there was an effort to rebuild that coalition. But as the South was gradually moving, not gradually, pretty rapidly in the direction of becoming Republican. But it has meant an ongoing set of tensions inside the Democratic Party. Clearly, the presidency of Lyndon Johnson ended badly in 1968. Looking back now, especially as an historian, 50 years hence, is there a different view of Lyndon Johnson? Arguably, it could be said that many of the great civil rights advances would not have happened without him. Will history, and is history, treating Lyndon Johnson more kindly now, 50 years later? Well, I think with the help of historians like Doris Kearns Goodwin, it probably is. He's always going to be a complicated figure. There is no way to completely rehabilitate him because of the way he handled the war. But he did accomplish an agenda in the early part of his presidency with civil rights that continues to bear fruit. He was a complicated man. You can't see him through rose-tinted glasses. He did good things and he did bad things. And he was an outsized ego and an outsized human being. So... I think with the distance of time, maybe some of the edges of anger at him that were flourishing in my generation, I am one of those 68 people, you know, the edges get softened. He did complicated things, and he is getting credit for some of the major changes that he was able to bring about. He is also getting credit for some major mistakes. I just think there's no reason to imagine that somehow you would have to ever decide that he was all good or all bad. He wasn't. He was a real mix. Race, gender, and class are still prevalent issues in today's politics and social movements. How is today's fight different, or where do you see similarities to 1968? Well, I do think it's dramatically different. All of those issues are acutely part of the struggles that are going on right now. But our economy is different. Young people have grown up in a different world. I think we do have a generation or two in which the racial divide is not as deep for some of them. Always remember that generations are not uniform. Look at the people in Charlottesville. They weren't all old. Some of those were young. 
I'm just constantly struck at the depth of the racial divide in this country, even though many people have a far more multiracial experience over the course of their lives. But we live in still fairly segregated worlds, and people don't know each other. We also live in racially segregated worlds. I mean, not just racially segregated, but class segregated worlds. And there's a lot of talk out there now about how we are more polarized than we have ever been. So it's really hard to get Pollyanna about this. I think we have some hard work to do, and we need to learn from prior struggles. But I also think it's incredibly important that younger generations define the issues as they currently exist and um, help move us towards addressing them in a deeper way. Well, does the fact that we survived 1968 and uh, the country is still here 50 years later, despite the divisiveness of that time, does it give you hope that we can heal the divisions today? I would have to say, yes, it does. If you think back to 68, those of us who lived through it, and the shock after shock after shock between assassinations and riots, I mean, that was also an era of urban race riots. It was an era when violence against demonstrators was common. It was at that time hard to imagine how we could get more polarized. So I think it's really critical that today we not allow ourselves to succumb to despair. We don't have the luxury of doing that. You're right. We're still here 50 years later, after 1968. We're still struggling with a lot of the same issues, but the contexts have also changed, and so the opportunities are different and new, and um, we have to keep going about the work. Obviously, there are fewer and fewer of us around now who lived through 1968 and experienced the tumult. Does it bother you as a historian that as people who experienced a particular period of time pass on that perhaps some of the, at least the visceral experience is lost, the ability of them to talk to younger people about what they experienced during that time. Uh, to me, a, a history book can certainly relate the events of 1968, right. but it's entirely different if you lived it through them. Well, I think that's always true. I mean, it's probably a more acute feeling for me as a historian, but also as a person who is now in retirement and aware of the difference in experience of time that different generations have and how difficult it is to communicate across generations what those earlier experiences were like. It's crucial that we not try to portray that older generations have no business telling younger generations what to do or that their experience was in any way more important or superior or worse or whatever, but there are things to learn. There are shoulders to stand on. That's part of why I'm a historian, is wanting to pass those stories on. I think as a society, we're getting a little better at doing public history. You know, we're using historic sites and parks in different ways 
when I was a child in Clemson, South Carolina, I toured the John C. Calhoun house, and all I learned about was the great man, John C. Calhoun, and how his, you know, lovely wife and children lived in fancy bedrooms and beautiful parlors. I didn't learn anything there about his advocacy of slavery and that he was the architect of the slavery as a positive good argument in the 1830s. And I certainly didn't learn anything about the lives of the black people who made that house run, who cooked the food, who cleaned the furniture, who, you know, fed the horses and brought them to the door, who worked in the fields. So I think we're doing a much better job of communicating the lives of all the people who were there and giving later generations ways to think about the complexities of the past. We just have to keep doing more of that. It won't do to whine about that. We have to be about the business of telling those stories as best we can, and then we have to be about the business of listening to younger people so that telling stories is not about preaching but about a conversation. We're talking with Sarah Evans. She's a Regents Professor Emeritus in the History Department at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the legacy of the year 1968. Violence was a major component in 1968. We saw the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, There were many shootings in the streets. There were violent protests, uh, police riots, of course, is what some of the description of the 1968 Democratic protests in Chicago. We also saw the government starting to take a look at violence in America. We really hear the first uh, mention of gun control, and uh, I believe also there was a study conducted by the federal government in 1968 to look at the causes of violence. Yes, there was. And that's an issue on which, if anything, we may have backslid, you know. It was a pretty violent time, and there was an effort to take a look and to recognize that violence doesn't exist by itself. There are underlying causes, and it's possible for a society to either encourage it or discourage it. Violence that comes from despair is one thing. Violence that comes with the intent to repress and suppress calls for other things. And violence that is multiplied by the availability of weapons that make a violent gesture into a massacre is another thing. I don't think as a society we yet know how to have that conversation. In December of 1968, as a matter of fact, uh, the very day we're recording this program, December 21st, 1968, Apollo 8 lifted off for the moon and was the first spaceship uh, in the history of the world to orbit the moon. Of course, there had been a tremendous space race for years between the Soviet Union and the United States and a a real uh, effort to uh, make sure the Americans were the first to uh, plant a flag on the moon. Vivid memories for those of us who were alive in 1968 of watching the video coming back from the Apollo 8 mission, the astronauts uh, looking at the Earthrise, the first time that had ever been done documented a beautiful, beautiful photograph of right. the Earth, and uh, one of the astronauts referring to the people on the good Earth. It seemed to me as a relatively young child that 
perhaps 68 ended at least on a positive note thanks to that mission. Do you think that uh, there was any sort of unification that took place as uh, what at the time I believe was the biggest television audience in history to watch the video coming back from Apollo 8? Did that at least perhaps cause the year to end on somewhat of a positive note? Well, I think that's a wonderful way to put it. There is no question that that photograph gave human beings for the first time a view of the reality that they inhabit this planet together and that it's this beautiful, small thing out there in the universe. That sense of interdependence, that picture brought home to many, many people that we are fundamentally interdependent. And it was one of the many things that sparked what was about to emerge as a, an environmental movement, for example, with Earth Day in 1970. It could be viewed in different ways, of course. For Americans, some of it was kind of triumphalist. Look what we did. It's our guys who are out there seeing this. But I've used that picture in my classes as a way of pointing out that human beings had never seen their home from the outside. And that changes the perspective when you come back inside and the sense that we own this little piece and we want to tell other people what they can and can't do. But the fact is we coexist on this beautiful and, as we now know, increasingly endangered planet. If that was a hopeful moment in 68, we still have yet to achieve the promise of that hope because we're still trying to get our species to understand that it is responsible for this planet. Sarah Evans is a Regents Professor Emeritus in the History Department at the University of Minnesota. Professor Evans, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.